Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Bryce Crocker, CEO of Jevois Mining. They're an ASX-listed miner focused on cobalt. They have assets in Uganda, Australia, and the US, where they hope to focus their time, attention, and money. Uh, he also gives us a devastating verdict on the impact of COVID-19 on the EV thematic, infecting companies and countries. However, there might be an opportunity for his business with the US viewing cobalt as a strategic commodity. Enjoy the podcast. Hey Bryce, how you doing, sir? Matthew, I'm well, how are you? Not too bad, mate, not too bad, surviving. What's that, what's that bike in the back? I meant to ask you, what's that bike in the background? You look like a serious road bike kind of guy. Uh, that bike is a specialized bench, a bit of free advertising, but it, uh, it's a lot more technically advanced and capable than it's uh, jockey. Blimey. That, that seat looks terrifying. That, that's, the, that's the thing I'd say to you. Uh, I'm not sure I could cope. Right, Bryce, why don't we kick off with a one-minute overview of Jevois Mining for people new to the story, and I'll, I'll pick it up from there. Yeah, thanks. So, uh, I mean, we're ASX listed, and we're excited to be creating a battery raw materials company producing battery raw materials company uh, focused on security of supply chains uh, supporting Western industry, which has clearly become increasingly more, more topical in recent weeks and months with, uh, with the unfortunate arrival of COVID and the impact on global supply chains. Uh, so we're a group of executives who came from larger mining companies. Uh, and I guess what I wanted to cover today was we typically don't talk about the commodity, but I did want to talk around cobalt because it's interesting, very interesting. Uh, and if you look across all of our investor presentations, you will see nothing on cobalt, you'll see nothing in uh, any of our statements, but it is an area where we've got a collectively across the team got a lot of background. Uh, we, do, uh, we do look at what we have as a competitive advantage and it is, I mean, it's fascinating what's happening. Yeah, I think we both want to talk about the same thing, actually, because um, we, we talked to you previously about the, the company and where you're at, and we will get on to that. But um, I want to talk to you specifically about what you think is happening with, because of COVID-19, how it's going to affect buying behavior and investment in the EV thematic, and obviously, which you, know, you, you, you play into with your cobalt. So what do you think the impact is going to be? on has to be all of that profoundly negative profoundly negative right anyone who gets up and says otherwise uh doesn't understand the physical dynamics of what's happening in the market and hasn't really thought around what the implications are but i think cobalt it's interesting for a couple of reasons i mean demand and it's not it's not weakening it's getting crushed completely decimated i mean i've never seen anything like it um, you had China autos probably down 80% in the Q1. All the Western automakers down 40, 50% Q2. Most of the big, I mean, many of the big automakers losing $100 million a day, a day. Um, and so you've had, from a supply chain perspective, you've had this massive, we're just, we're just really at the start. And I think this is where it's interesting. If you look at what's going to play out over the next three to six months, we're really at the start of this process because COVID, from a supply perspective, has really just started. But you've got, Customers who aren't buying or can't buy because they're locked in their homes. Um, manufacturing facilities that are shut. So if I'm a steel mill and I would have been getting ferro-nickel, ferro-chrome, cobalt, moly, I mean, all these deliveries, I don't want that. That's getting pushed back to the, to the 
um, traders who are pushing back to the producers. And this shock is coming through the system and it's going to take time to flow through. But the if you look at what's happening to end demand on cobalt, I mean, electric vehicles, there's no positive scenario uh, near term as to what's happening for EVs, clearly. Uh, autos are being crushed. Um, but uh, as you look forwards, I do think that the Chinese, obviously, they're, I mean, they're trying to come back on. Their biggest challenge, from what I understand, is really their export markets are off. But they're trying to kind of turn their economy back on. Their, their autos are trying to start again. And there are obviously, uh, again, those subsidies, the incentivizations, the government prioritizations for electric vehicles, that's flowing back in. Uh, but it, any way you look at it, electric vehicles is going to be, I mean, the, the numbers are fluid, but it's going to be a significant, significant reduction, even over last year, and the talk of growth rates is, is gone. Uh, so that's the bad news on EVs. Um, but is that a structural permanent shift? Um, I can kind of talk around that. I don't believe so, but it is going to create a massive dislocation in the supply chain across 2020 that people weren't expecting. Uh, I mean, so that's on the on the electric vehicle side, which is obviously cobalt chemicals with cobalt metals, uh, aerospace. Pretty hard to be bullish on aerospace right now. Um, I would suggest that that's kind of 30, 40% down. Oil and gas, pretty difficult to be positive on oil and gas exploration type drilling for cobalt, super al cobalt alloys, et cetera. So demand is bad, but I think taking away from that, cobalt's kind of unique because you've got three quarters coming out of one country that's highly unstable. So, I mean, we all hope that Africa, including the Congo, gets through COVID. I mean, we're sitting in a part of the world where we're, we're relatively very fortunate. Uh, there's some other parts of the world which don't have the health infrastructure, which already have immune compromised populations because of HIV, uh, which uh, don't have the efficiencies or the, the, the governance, perhaps, that, that we're able to rely on uh, in the West. So, I mean, I do, we're all hoping that Africa kind of holds together as a continent, and particularly the DRC, because there is no safety net in the DRC if something goes wrong. But clearly, three quarters of the cobalt coming out of the DRC, I mean, for context, it's twice the size of OPEC on the oil market. So it kind of matters. In terms of what we're seeing and hearing on the DRC, so the major mines are still operating. Um, some of the smaller ones, Kapoi, Soko, um, Kisaveri is shut, but the big mines, your Katangas, um, Tankies, etc., are continuing to operate. Uh, the border currently is back open because obviously you've got two borders to get the product out of DRC. You've got to get through Zambia, then you've got to get through Zambia across into South Africa and down to Durban. Uh, South Africa shut, so the port of Durban is shut. There's material coming out east through uh, Dar es Salaam. I've heard material coming out from Mombasa as traders look to use alternate exit routes. You've got, the, I mean, the trucking, if you've ever been to the DRC, the border with Zambia is an unmitigated disaster at the best of times. Um, just queues going, stretching as far as the eye can see and a lot further. So that's obviously there now, but you do have sulfur and lime and consumables coming across. So the mines in the DRC are stockpiling aggressively on the expectation that there could be some interruptions. Uh, expats are gone simplistic and broad statement, but uh, a lot of expats in South Africans who had their families in South Africa, they didn't want to be sitting in the DRC. Um, so a lot of the critical technical expertise, major projects uh, are being cancelled. So 
I think it really depends. So what the, the outlook for Cobalt is very, very binary as to what's going to happen to the DRC. They're behind us. Uh, the advice that I've seen is a COVID peak is probably kind of, kind of, you're looking at June for week, week one, June, week two, June, in terms of when it's likely to genuinely flow through. And clearly the, the potential market impact is profound. I mean, Cobalt, Metal Bulletin SG grade, I think is trading at around uh, 1540, 1550 today, so that's inconsistent with demand getting completely destroyed. If you looked at what's happening in the oil, the oil market, obviously, I mean, that, that shows what happens when uh, demand disappears. So, which just illustrates that the cobalt market, there is this uncertainty around what's going to happen in the DRC. Uh, the Chinese refineries have inventory for now, but that inventory is going to last, it's not going to last multiple months. There's material obviously sitting in Durban, which is waiting to get out as and when the uh, as and when the ports open again. But COVID's also not going to go away. So, I mean, I, one of the greatest challenges of the DRC is logistics. It's one of the most painful places to get a product, to get consumables in, and to get product out anywhere in the world. It costs you probably 300 bucks a ton to get it out uh, in the back of the truck, whether it's copper cathode, cobalt hydroxide. Uh, Zambia's installed a 14-day quarantine period for us so there's any truck drivers coming so if you're a truck driver you come in from south africa you get a 14-day quarantine quarantine period at the entry to zambia you go to the drc you come back you've got another 14-day quarantine period so trucking delays are probably only up two or three days currently clearly there's a lot more truck drivers I and mean, there's no shortage of guys wanting to drive the trucks for now but the potential if if south africa and zambia and particularly the DRC, they're different. There's potential for social unrest in the event of these big mine closures. Uh, clearly, to use the artisanal supply as an example, uh, people aren't mining, you don't have women and children mining artisanal cobalt uh, because they choose to do that versus uh, open a corner store selling clothing. They're doing that because that is their option to put food on the table. Many people are working at the big mines, they're big employers. Um, they, the, the social implications of these sites shutting as, as profound. So, I mean, I don't profess to have a crystal ball as to which way it's going to go, but the potential market dislocation uh, and it is, is obviously enormous. And I guess what it's highlighted is in our discussions with OEMs and other end users, clearly the DRCs, it's been there and it's been people have been uncomfortable with certain aspects of the DRC, whether it's governance, whether it's um, the artisanal mining for a long time. But now they're looking at security of supply chains and they're realizing that this really is a profound risk to their business being reliant on a critical component for electric vehicles or for steel production uh, from a part of africa which is obviously a long long way um, from uh, from you having the confidence that you're going to get the product and the input you need on time okay that's a fairly devastating picture you're painting with regards to uh obviously demand um, which, as you say, you're not quite sure when that kind of comes back on because it's a slightly dislocated logistics uh, supply chain at the at, at, at the moment. Um, so if Chinese come on earlier than the rest of the world, um, we're playing sort of catch up there. You t I know you were talking cobalt DRC because cobalt is a big part of the D DRC economy. Can I just ask before we get on to you, what do you think it's going to mean for the other uh, battery uh, commodities, the, the nickels of this world, the, the lithiums, 
the graphites, the etc. Are they are they as disrupted as cobalt? I think no no commodity has three quarters of supply coming from one country. I mean, clearly Indonesia is incredibly important for the nickel market, uh, and clearly other countries are important for lithium. Uh, I mean, I don't pretend to know as much about the lithium market, but equally from what I see is uh, lithium was everyone. I, there was an expectation that lithium was in oversupply before this began, so that kind of implies that lithium's in for um, it's in for some challenges. But I think if you do the lithium-ion batteries, the components are each subject to the discrete market forces. So, uh, I mean, nickel is going to be a core component of the battery moving forwards. Everyone wants a car that goes a long way and gets there, and gets there quickly. Um, that's obviously a critical part of what's going to underpin this, the success of electric vehicles. Everyone wants to get there quickly and get there uh, fast, but get there safely, hence the importance of cobalt. I mean, if cobalt was easy to engineer out, we wouldn't be having this discussion. There's been a lot of smarter people than I have been looking at this challenge for a long time, but as of today, it hasn't been possible to engineer out in a way that provides the same performance, et cetera, as an 811 or a, a one of the high, uh, high nickel NCA chemistries, uh, the Panasonic and Tesla are running. Okay, so I guess, um, the, well, the whole EV market is going to be dependent on the lowest common denominator coming through. And you're suggesting that's, that's cobalt because of the dynamics in DRC. So let's get back to you. What are you going to do about that? How's that going to affect your business? Because we've been reading about your, obviously we've talked about your Idaho uh, business. There's been a lot of conversations that you've been having, having in the US with US funders. Is that your route out of this? Well, if you gave me a choice of, in this type of environment, what mining project would you like to have? I would take a cobalt project in the United States with moderate capital that's half built. That's, as opposed to other alternatives that I could have on my plate, that's not bad. Uh, I think that I've always said that the US is the most strategic market in the world for cobalt, uh, period. Uh, because of the importance to aerospace, because of the importance to its steel industry, and increasingly because of the importance of electrification. The US automakers have been behind those in China, uh, but they're catching up fast, so they plan to catch up quickly. Uh, so I think being in the United States, the United States has no domestic cobalt mine. It's all imported. Uh, so for us to be at the forefront of that is obviously, uh, it's, it's timely. Uh, and I think that it does provide an opportunity. If you look at cobalt was always geopolitically important to the United States. Now you're in a situation where anything you can do to create economic growth and jobs in the second half of 2020 and into 2021 in the US is going to be enormously important. I mean, clearly your viewers, have either, I mean, we're all seeing the news out of the states. We're all seeing the levels of unemployment rising at just quite terrifying rates. Uh, we were always getting traction with what we wanted to do. Uh, now, I think that there's an opportunity to really have a profound impact uh, and build a mine during a period where the US and Idaho is looking to create economic growth uh, to come out of this um, situation. Well, it seemed logical, but it's also, I guess, enhanced by this wave of nationalism, which is spreading across the US, you know, US, US first. And um, I mean, and we've also read about you know the support you're getting 
uh, for this. So you say it is timely. It's absolutely timely for you. You have su- you recently submitted some um, R- RPFs. Is that right? Uh, so this is in terms of our debt financing process. Yeah. Yes. So. I mean, we're working with a select pool of potential lenders and we'll be finalising the bankable feasibility study for Idaho shortly uh, to provide that to the banks under NDA. They'll also get an updated financial model. Um, so they did provide indicative term sheets in January. We made a decision at that not that time not to make a final appointment. Uh, we wanted to progress the BFS and get to a position where we could really differentiate between the options that were available. Uh, I mean, this is an asset which is obviously there's 100 US which has been spent, so it's a partway constructed mine in a great jurisdiction. Clearly, I mean, the capital markets, I spoke a little around what's happening in, the, in the terms of uh, industry on supply chains and, and capital markets, again, there are uh, lots of volatility, but equally lots of liquidity getting pumped into the system. I guess 10 trillion between uh, fiscal injections in the US and monetary easing, uh, clearly that I mean, certainly it's having an impact in terms of the uh, debt capital markets remaining open and banks willing to lend. And clearly you've seen an impact in terms of what's happened on the Dow for the last 30 days or so. So uh, I think that as we move forwards, we've moderated the time frame because we didn't think it was the right time to be pushing someone to go through credit right now, just given the, the uncertainty. Uh, I mean, we're optimistic on the future. I mean, I did, I was transparent that I think demand right now is crushed, but I don't expect that to last indefinitely. I do think that there's there's also going to be uh, pushes that come out of, if you like, COVID that are difficult to judge now, whether it, I think everyone likes, everyone in the cities is like kind of getting used to having clean air um, with oil use being down by 30 or 40 million barrels a day. Uh, people are, if you go to Venice, are seeing jellyfish, just small things like that. But I think that there's, it's difficult to judge what are the, what's the environmental flow through going to be. And are governments, when they come back on and when they revitalise industry, are they really going to want to revitalise industry and allocate their capital towards ICE um, production rather than taking the opportunity to to use it to a essentially a step change on the EV side. Bryce, can you just tell me a little bit about the, the, the types of institutions that were submitting um, bits? Because if you look at people like BlackRock, I mean, that's the one that people are talking about. They're, they're, they're segueing away from coal. They're segueing away from oil. And they're moving into sort of cleaner, investing in you know cleaner, uh, greener uh, opportunities. So are you seeing more of that? Or is it just the usual players? No, I think that ESG is a big deal. I mean, I, I know that there's a debate probably within you and your um, and the relationships you have around what does COVID mean for ESG? Is it going to take a backseat for a period? My personal view is I don't think it will. Uh, I think that ESG was kind of, it's here. It's an important part of investing. It's in the matrix of any decision making. Um, and it also, I mean, the electrification of vehicles is, is something that's fundamentally important. And I think that it is going to be a criterion. Uh, I mean, if, if we had a coal mine up in this part of Idaho, we'd be having very, very different discussions. We wouldn't be having discussions with many of the lenders. The commercial banks aren't in the business of financing coal mines. And equally on the equity side, uh, a lot of investors also, I think, are looking at ESG. And uh, if you want to invest in cobalt, You've either got to go to the DRC, which is very difficult within within an ESG type framework, 
or a lot of the other projects are large capital, long lead time, high technical risk of in varied jurisdictions, not without exception, but as a general rule, most of the better projects are located in more challenging jurisdictions than, than, than the developed world. Uh, so this is again where Idaho is nice. I mean, it's small, but you know, I like small, I like low risk. That's um, it's a good way to start a business. Well, yeah, you, you said you'd rather have a project in the US than in Africa at the moment. I, I get that. Um, do you think you're going to be able to get this uh, BFS complete this year, given the sort of COVID restrictions? I mean, are people able to move around? No, and get the, BF, the BFS is largely complete. We're going through a peer review now. Mm-hmm. Uh, where there's a couple of items that we're working through. Is again, there's obviously the on the offtake side. I mean, offtake. Uh, lab turnarounds have been slow, so it's taken us longer to prepare physical samples, taken us longer to curry them, and it's taken the customers longer to do their testing. So that process of kind of metallurgical test work of products, that's been taken longer. And I mean, clearly there are some jurisdictions and cultures that uh, it's much better to sit down face to face. We haven't been able to go to Japan and South Korea all year, for example, because we are tied up elsewhere in January and the restrictions came into place with COVID quite quickly. Uh, so the travel is in, the ability to finalise travel, to finalise the offtake uh, is important in relation to the BFS, but the BFS itself is essentially complete. We've gone through an independent, started a independent expert process with RPM on behalf of the lenders. Okay, so but I'm just trying to think in terms of your organisation, obviously Idaho's your, your number one project, number one focus where your money is mostly being spent. Um, are you going to be able to get the kind of deal in today's economic environment or do you think actually we may wait? Let's just see when, the, when everything kind of clears, the dust clears, we may be able to negotiate a much better deal. Well, I think there's, it's an interesting question. So the lenders say that they're there. Now, if anyone thinks that they don't have increased risk on the ability to secure capital in today's environment, you've got your head in your sand, the sand. I mean, clearly we, risk is elevated, yeah? I mean, we're dealing with volatility that we didn't expect. Um, but certainly, I mean, for the alternates, these are closed funds. They've got the capital sitting there. There's no um, fundraising requirement on their part. And the commercial banks are still lending. I mean, selective, selectively for the right asset, for the right team in the right jurisdiction, but they're, they're just, ostensibly they're not shut for business. What I see is perhaps the larger constraint, certainly if, if we looked at the previous time frame where we said uh, the commercial banks, uh, for example, they would like to see new equity uh, as part of a project financing. Uh, now, my position is there's 100 US of equity already in the ground. They give us some credit for that, but um, they would like to see some additional new equity. I mean, we own uh, four or 5% of the company. Um, kind of 13, 14% on a diluted basis. So we're very sensitive to dilution, uh, but equally, we're also very sensitive. We're not gonna gear the company inappropriately and introduce risk, existential risk, um, just through a fear of raising equity, but the price at which we may raise equity does matter. And so if I, I'm, I'm not very often that I'm put on the record, but I have been very clear at today's share price, we're not raising construction equity. I mean, we've kind of, we, the share price has improved over the last week, but we're still a long way south of where a construction equity raise would gain support from our other shareholders and from management. How do you get we're back up there? Because to... the cost of your money is important to you. It's, it, it, 
dramatically affects your your profitability and ability to make money if you're doing I get the banks will offer you money, but they're offering money on their terms. What are the what are the terms that you're going to be looking for? Where does the share price need to be before you say right now is the right time? I think it's. I mean, it's what I. I mean, I'm not. I am going to commit that we won't raise at the current price. I'm not going to give you a price that we will raise at. But what I will say is that I think that the as we look forwards, we're not in the business of just building a company or an operating company for the sake of it. Uh, if I can see a pathway and if the board can see a pathway whereby we can build it and enhance shareholder value and do it three or four months later, we're going to do that. And that essentially is what underpinned the revised schedule. We took the view that raising equity or potentially raising any equity mid-year this year uh, would have been inappropriate. Um, is it going to be appropriate in September when the banks are lined up because the banking, again, in terms of the CPs, we don't need equity. We're financed through to mid-2021. Um, we, to the extent the banks require construction equity, uh, it'll be a condition precedent. So in, at the point we're coming to raise it, at that point, there's an offtake, which is in place, that's been announced. There's a bankable feasibility study, which has obviously been published. The debt facility, the banks have gone through credit. So we're not coming to out and raising equity absent that in, in the context of the Idaho financing. So it's a different proposition at that point in time. At that point in time, as an equity holder, you're investing in to a construction raise that's 12 months from first production. So it's a different yeah. pitch at that point. So um, just how strategic does the US government see Cobalt? Are they Would they be prepared to underwrite this project if it's that strategic to them? I'm not going to comment on what governments do or don't do. I mean, we're very, we adopt a different approach. Our government, the discussions we have with governments remain private, whether it's in the US, Australia or Africa. Uh, and in terms of the importance of cobalt, I mean, I'm not talking out of school here. It's very, very important to them. Has been for a very long time. If you talk to US lawmakers, if you talk to the DOD, if you talk to state and you talk about, obviously rare earths gets all the headlines, uh, but cobalt's up there uh, because of its importance to aerospace and critical industries. And obviously the, the supply chain for cobalt, it's not quite rare earths, but it's not, it's not far off in terms of uh, domination from uh, from non from non US supply. Cobalt is a highly strategic. We wouldn't be getting the traction that we are um, in Washington if 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 it if it wasn't of immense concern for the US. No, I've I've, I've read I've read the reports. I've read, I've read the articles. It it clearly is. But I wondered, you know, where and how far they go to back that up. Because in this wave of nationalism, everything, it appears, is strategic importance to the US, right? Um, so, you know, I wondered if they had made statements, if they have given you indications as to how, how supportive they're going to be. And by that, I mean dollars. Again, the, the U, I mean, US sovereign, uh, state sovereigns have a lot of flexibility in how they choose to support or not support projects. I mean, I think what I will say is that they, they view us as credible. Uh, I'm, not, I'm a believer in free capital markets. I'm not a believer in government interference. The last thing I want is for governments to go out and start building uneconomic cobalt mines because it's going to destroy the economics of the economic mine that we're about to build. So I don't want governments to wade in uh, and without due thought, try and choose winners, um, et cetera. But I do think that, I mean, we're not quite rare earths in terms of rare earths is obviously a very niche, very small commodity that is 
subject to particular nuances. Uh, but again, cobalt, it's a very important metal. Uh, and when you've got three quarters of the cobalt supply coming out of the DRC and then 80 to 90% of that going into China and not coming out for use in Western industry, that it creates a significant level of concern, both in government, but also in industry now. So that's one thing that COVID is doing. It's causing the security of supply issue. It's not just the government issue now. It's OEMs, it's steel mills, it's everyone who's looking at where they're getting materials from and thinking about how, in the context of what the world's gonna look like, how, what does it mean for their business moving forwards? Okay, so look, I get the focus on Idaho. It's very, very important to you. Your Aussie 140 million bucks of market cap. Where do you think the most of that value lies? Do you think that's Idaho or do you think that Neko Young in Australia, which you're not doing too much with, or even you know, Begali and Kalembe are getting any value attributed to, to them? Difficult to say. I do think that for us, Idaho is our core focus, it's our key focus. I think that, I mean, you can kind of see where the other low-grade laterite deposits in Australia have trended in terms of market cap and kind of form a view from there. I mean, Nico Young's not forgotten. We're still talking to off-takers, specifically Japan and South Korea in terms of partial off-take for funding the definitive feasibility study there and some additional drilling. And Uganda, we've paused. Uh, I mean, Uganda is the reasons why we're there is really to look to assist the government with Kalembi and uh, its shareholding in KCCL. I um, mean, we've been one of the largest investors into the country in terms of drilling since we uh, merged with M2 Cobalt in early 2019. Uh, we believe in the future of Uganda and we want to play a part, but equally, right now, it's not an. Given, given COVID, we, we also need to really focus on the safety and security of our teams. Uganda so far has been dealing with the, uh, the pandemic better than most African countries, and we hope that continues. But you've also got to, again, come back to investors and what they read into this is, you know, Kalembe, Begali, Nico Young, they're, they're kind of, they've become non-core to you as you try and get Idaho moving forward. That's where the value creation lies quickest. Uh, you've, got se- you've got 7 million bucks or circa 7 million bucks of cash to get you through to, you're telling me, what, middle of next year. Um, what, are you under any pressure in Australia or Uganda to get things going? Or is COVID quite a nice excuse to just sort of park things up for now? Well, I don't think, I mean, we're not using COVID as an excuse anywhere. I think Nico Young, we've been very clear that uh, we want a partner in Nico Young. We needed to decide which flow sheet to use for bankable feasibility. And in order to determine which flow sheet and product we should produce, we want to work with an industrial partner as part of that. And it's not the right time to be sinking money into these type of projects. It's just not. I mean, it's uh, these these projects, they will have their time in the day. We're not trying to sell Nico Young. I think it's a fantastic call option for our shareholders on higher metal prices. Uh, but it's not something that, that in the current environment, I mean, cash is king, balance street, street strength is king. Uh, companies that I think get into trouble are the companies that really just expect to come back to market. And this is a lifestyle. They just keep on going and they want to keep on going. And you know what? We've made hard decisions. We've fundamentally changed how we're set up as an organisation. We've battened down the hatches and we did that immediately. We're, um, I'm a firm believer in after... 
obviously lived through a couple of these now. You move early, you move hard, and you move fast. Uh, I am optimistic on East Africa, uh, longer term. We've obviously put in the application or the offer for Kabanga in Tanzania as well, phenomenal deposit. But equally, I think for these countries, we're not spending any money today, and I don't think our share, I think our shareholders would, would think, would look at what we have in the United States, and that's really the place where we should be uh, focused. And we're about building an operating company. We're not assembling a portfolio of assets just to kind of ride the cycles up and down and avoid actually rolling up our sleeves and doing anything. We want to build the mine in Idaho. And this is, I mean, in these type of environments, you know, I actually enjoy, it sounds a bit <laughs> um, depressing. I mean, but I, I, this, is, this is the type, I enjoy this. Like this is, obviously COVID is incredibly tragic, but in terms of, your ability to look at what's happening in the industry, step back, it really sorts out the companies that kind of live to do this as opposed to work to live, if you kind of know what I mean. Like we're very focused. The opportunities are likely to come up in the next six to 12 months through as they are through any downturn are going to be enormous. And so what we're doing as a team is also stepping back and thinking, okay, where do we want to be? I mean, because when we're not about being a single project company in five years, I can, affirm that that's i'm not a believer in the business model uh, as i'm working through with lenders now and that coming from originally a debt background myself it's fundamentally flawed single project companies there's a reason why they trade on the multiples they do in equity markets because if something goes wrong you're in a world of trouble so i'm not a believer in that business model and so we are stepping back and looking okay how do we position ourselves to be one of the key players in three to five years He's really helping Western industry find solutions uh, and really grow the electrification trend uh, within the Europe, within the US, et cetera. Uh, and I think that there's equity market support for that. We're not, I, I don't see a disconnect between what we're doing. I mean, we have pers we're proudly Australian. We've been on the ASX for 50 years. So sure, I mean, we are, that, that's an, we are Australian, but equally we, what we're doing is we're, uh, unapologetic commercial reason because I, the value of being a secure supplier to that supply chain over the longer term, building trusting relationships, building proximate relationships, that's going to carry value in the future. Do you think you're going to list in the US? No current plans. No current plans. We have a, we have a, a, an OTC listing that we, I mean, we obviously, we, we when we acquired eCobalt, uh, we we had 8,000 shareholders, a large portion of those are in the US and uh, we definitely want to maintain that retail exposure in the US and have the ability of US shareholders because of obviously the US dominance in terms of our asset base and focus. Okay, Bryce, that's a good place to finish. Thank you very much for that update. Um, very exciting times. I'm intrigued by your strategy. I think it's it's smart. Um, I, hope, I hope obviously the next few months kind of for everyone's sake, you know, get get gets clear and you can get back to normal working, whatever that looks like. Um, but stay in touch with us. Let, let us know how you're getting on and uh, like I said, you do, do pick up that phone, okay? No problem, Matthew. Thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. All the best. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.